I ask you, please stand with me in a reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage this morning. Again, we are uh, continuing our, our study of the gospel according, uh, sorry, I'm still in Luke in my, in my mind, we're still, are still in Luke, of Acts. And um, our passage this morning is really just, uh, just Acts 2, 14 to 21, the day of Pentecost. But uh, I'm actually going to, I'm going to read um, all the way from, uh, from chapter 2, verse 1, and, and all the way uh, down to verse 41. So if, if you are, are not able to stand for that length of time, that's fine. Um, please, please feel free to, to, to be seated. But, um, but Acts 2, 1 to 41. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is the only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my flesh, my, sorry, pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the, the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also shall dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. 
And his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that this God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of our Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon his heart for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending your Son to obey your law, to die for our sins, and to raise him for our justification. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are accomplishing the building of your church through us, that you have accomplished all of salvation for us, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to us to work for the advance of your name and for the advance of your kingdom. Holy Spirit, we thank you for indwelling us and for empowering us to fulfill our gospel ministry. Holy and triune God, we bow before you as your adopted sons and daughters, confident that the same power that was at work on the day of Pentecost is at work here in our midst in your church. Lord, as your word is proclaimed this morning, I pray that you would empower it, strengthen me, I pray, to do that which I could never do. Help me, I pray, to be faithful to your word. Help all of us, I pray, to respond to your word in worship, in faith, and in obedience. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Please be seated. On October, in October 1879, after working on at least 3,000 different theories to develop a commercially viable incandescent light bulb, Thomas Alva Edison succeeded. He used a filament made of carbonized sewing thread and that was housed in a vacuum bulb made of blown glass. That bulb burned for under 15 hours. But with the use of a bamboo filament, he increased the life of the bulb to up to 1,200 hours. And after Edison and a team of men had been working on improvements to the prototype bulb for over over 24 hours, Edison handed the prototype bulb to a young 
helper to carry upstairs to the vacuum machine. You can imagine how gingerly he walked carrying that light bulb step by step up the stairs. But I think you know what's happened next. He was just about to arrive and to deposit the bulb in its location when he dropped the bulb and smashed it to smithereens. 24 hours of work. But when they completed the next bulb, after another 24 hours, what, what do you think Edison did? Who, who do you think he handed that light bulb to? He handed it to that same young helper. I think even from a human perspective, you can say that that light bulb could not have been in a safer set of hands. Because he learned from his mistake and he was more careful the second time. It was really characteristic of, of Edison's benevolence to give the young man another opportunity. But, but again, this was wisdom because this man was one who was going to take care in his handling of the light bulb. I think you know where I'm going with this. I see a parallel with Peter. Peter had been charged with the task of handling the light, so to speak. And he dropped it. Not just one time, but three times. Three times he denied Christ, and the third time he called down a curse upon himself in the process. And the rooster crowed. And Jesus turned to look Peter in the eye, and Peter's eyes flooded with tears. But do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like Peter? Do you ever feel like you have failed again and again and again? Do you ever feel like you have dropped the proverbial light bulb? Do you ever feel like you have dropped the light? Do you ever feel like you have let Jesus down? And do you wonder if Jesus will drop you? But what does Jesus do with Peter? Does he drop him and replace him? As Judas had dropped Jesus and was replaced? No, Jesus hands the mission back to Peter again. Jesus reinstates Peter. It's implied in Luke and Acts, but it's explicit in John 21. Three times now Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. One for every denial. And three times Peter answers in the affirmative, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter's about to get a chance to prove it. Though he has failed miserably and has recognized his failure, will he succeed? Will he succeed now as he handles the light? And how will the people respond? We're going to see this morning that Jesus had a plan for Peter, even in his failure. Just as he does for you and yours. Jesus uses everything in the lives of true disciples, even failure, for their good and for his glory. It's the day of Pentecost, and the disciples were gathered in the house in Jerusalem when suddenly the house in which they were gathered was, was filled with a mighty rushing wind, and divided tongues of fire appeared over the heads of the gathered disciples. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to declare the glories of God in the languages of the diaspora Jews from many nations who were gathered in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. 
At the sound of the wind, they rushed to the scene to find out what was going on. And they were astonished and asked, what does this mean? But others mocked and accused them of being drunk with new wine. Well, in our passage this morning, Peter preaches a sermon that answers the question, what does this mean? Peter is going to open the scriptures to reveal the meaning of Pentecost for what is taking place in their midst, what will happen in the world, and what must happen in the lives of individuals. And it's all in the context of what Pentecost says about Christ. Derek Thomas says that this sermon in its totality is expositional, Christological, and evangelistic. I have three main points. In verses 14 and 15, we see Peter's transformation. In verses 16 to 18, we see Peter's exposition. And in verses 19 to 21, the day of the Lord. So first of all, Peter's transformation in verses 14 and 15. Peter now stands up with the rest of the apostles. This is a a powerful picture. The the once timid apostles are now standing before before thousands of Jewish men. And some of these same men were the very ones who had cried out before the Romans crucify him to Jesus. This is a picture of the, the apostles' authority as eschatological judges over Israel, as Jesus declared to them in Luke 22, 30. What a remarkable change in the lives of these men. But the change is even more evident in Peter. Peter doesn't just lift up his body, he lifts up his voice. He stands up and he speaks. He's showing that that he is truly the, the leader of the apostolic band. And he addresses the gathered crowd. Now, the same word that's translated addresses is the same one that's used in verse 4, that the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit is speaking through Peter in the same way that the Holy Spirit spoke through the gathered disciples and the, the gathered people heard them speak in their own languages. The Holy Spirit is now giving Peter utterance to Proclaim the word of God. As we often see in the scriptures, first comes the sign, and then comes the proclamation. But as we'll see, in in this case, the proclamation itself is a sign. Peter is about to preach the first sermon in Acts. And Luke here provides a a summary of Peter's main points. This It didn't take very long for us to read this. This this is not a paradigm for a five-minute sermon. This is the first of 15 sermons recorded by Luke in Acts, eight of which are Peter's. Now, there are common themes in these sermons, including the fact that because of the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, the last days have begun. Also, that Christ has given the Holy Spirit to empower the church. And also the the consummation of all things that will take place at Christ's return. And these sermons often end with a call to repentance and faith in order to receive forgiveness and to receive the promised Holy Spirit. And all of these elements are present here in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. James Boyce uh, also refers to this sermon as the first sermon of the Christian era. 
Remember we talked about last week about how on the day of Pentecost, the church is born. And here we have the first sermon in the church. As we'll see, Peter now understands clearly how the scriptures point to Christ and what Christ came to do, including what Christ came to do in his ascension and what that means for redemption history. So how does Peter figure this out? Through Christ's teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. This sermon is saturated with scripture as every sermon should be. Peter has already shown a remarkable understanding of the scriptures in calling for a replacement for Judas, according to Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. We saw that in the second half of Acts 1. Now Peter turns his focus first to Joel, and then to Psalm 16, and then Psalm 110, as we'll see next week. Obviously, Peter has learned from from Jesus' post-resurrection teaching. However, Bible teaching alone did not prevent Peter from denying Jesus three times. Peter, the same man who cowered before a servant girl, now preaches with boldness, with power, before thousands. In verses 22 to 41, we'll, we'll see Peter calling the, the gathered multitude to repentance. Now, Peter's not perfect. In Galatians, you see that, that Peter will still have struggles with the fear of man. But there's a marked change in Peter. He is radically different. This change in Peter must be attributed to the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Peter's proclamation is a sign. It is a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of disciples to make them witnesses for Christ. So Peter preaches this sermon empowered by the Holy Spirit. He begins, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Again, there is is no mistake in the difference in Peter. He's saying, listen to me. He's also no longer speaking in tongues, but, but in Aramaic, the, the common tongue, or, or possibly Greek, the, the lingua franca of the Roman Empire. Tongues have faded into the background. As I explained last week, tongues is not the focus of Pentecost. For those who focus on, on tongues, they're missing the point of Pentecost. Pentecost is far bigger than tongues. Pentecost is the beginning of a new era. The era in which the Holy Spirit now is given to indwell not just specific people for specific times, not just kings and, and priests and prophets and, and judges, but, but all Christians for all the time. The Holy Spirit came and went under the old covenant, but now after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit permanently indwells all Christians, including, praise God, including you and me. So by God's grace, I am proclaiming this message in the power of the Holy Spirit. And by God's grace, you are receiving this message in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is at work here in our midst. In the same way as he was in the midst of those gathered Jews, the gathered disciples on the day of Pentecost. James Boyce says the most 
important thing is that those who were filled by the Holy Spirit began to be Christ's witnesses as he had told them they would be. Again, the proclamation is the sign. In Acts 1.8, Jesus told the apostles that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. And now with the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, we are witnessing the fulfillment of that promise. Peter has received power. And now he's functioning as a witness for Christ. And Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to continue to bear witness of him. This is the theme of Acts. This is the theme of of Providence Baptist Church. Is this your theme? As R.C. Sproul says, there is no such thing as a Christian who has not been anointed by the Holy Spirit for ministry. If you are a Christian, you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit for ministry. We just spent several weeks talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit that Christ has given to the church to empower the church to fulfill the church's mission, the church's function. But there were scoffers there. There were scoffers who accused the disciples of being drunk. They had just heard the glories of God expounded in the native languages of 15 gathered countries. They'd only heard a babbling noise. Not unlike those whose languages were confused at Babel. They were under God's judgment, of which tongues were assigned. And Peter says that they're not drunk. It's only the third hour. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. As Peter's sermon will demonstrate, the disciples are innocent of this charge, but the crowds are guilty, not just of being drunk, but guilty of crucifying Jesus Christ. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and then even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And so here we see tongues as a sign of judgment on these scoffers. Now we come to Peter's exposition in verses 16 to 18. Peter's sermon focuses on promise and fulfillment. And here the focus is on the the promise of the Holy Spirit before the day of the Lord. And and next week we'll see the the fulfillment of the promise of Christ's resurrection and ascension and the promise of forgiveness and receiving the the Spirit for those who repent and turn to Christ. Here in, in, in verses 16 to 21, Peter turns to the book of Joel, an Old Testament minor prophet. Now, when you hear the term the minor prophets, you need to understand that the minor prophets aren't called the minor prophets because they're less important. They're called the minor prophets because their books are shorter. Joel only has three chapters compared to the 66 books of Isaiah. Okay, these are the 12 minor prophets are the shorter prophetic books in the Old Testament. So let's just turn back for a few moments to Joel and let me just read the passage. This is... Peter is, is quoting Joel 2, 28 to 32. And so if you, if you have trouble finding 
Joel, remember, it's only three chapters. It's easy to, to flick past it, but it's, it's just after um, Daniel and um, just after Daniel and just, just before uh, Amos. Or sorry, just before Hosea. Joel 2, 28 to 32. Again, he's quoting this basically verbatim. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my, flat, my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord had said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now the, the second half of, of verse 32, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, Peter does not actually reference that in his sermon. But as we think back here to, to Joel chapter 2 and, and in relation to, to Acts chapter 2, don't fail to stop and reflect on the fact that this Old Testament book, written somewhere around the 6th century B.C., was being fulfilled right here in Acts. And there are elements of this prophecy that, that Joel spoke and that, that Peter repeated that, that will be repeated in the future. This could happen soon. Some of us may be alive to see that day. See that in 19 and 20. But I trust that all of us, if you're a Christian, you will see the fulfillment of verse 21 of Acts 2. Again, don't, don't, don't miss this fact. And we, we take these things for granted, but, but this was written in the 6th century BC, and it's now being fulfilled 600 years later on Pentecost. The Bible is 66 books written by over, over 40 authors over a period of about 1,500 years. Yet the Bible completely agrees with itself all the time. The, the number one rule of hermeneutics, of, of Bible interpretation, is the analogy of faith. Since all of Scripture is in harmony with itself, with no contradictions, the interpretation of every passage must be compared and must line up with other parts of the Bible. So then Scripture interprets Scripture. Now there's a vitally important reason for that. Again, yes, there are 66 books with over 40 authors, 40 human authors. But the Bible is ultimately one book written by one author, the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter here is then connecting his citation of Joel 2.28-32 with the events of Pentecost, calling them last day events. So we must consider Acts chapter 2 in light of Joel 2 and the context of Acts 2 in the context of Joel 2 as the partial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Peter is announcing that the eschatological time that the Lord had promised and Joel wrote about has arrived. 
He's saying it is now the last days. As Daryl Bach says, the eschatological clock is ticking. God's final act of salvation has begun. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh and is the sign that we have entered the last days. The final period of history between the first and the second coming of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we live in the last days. And the sign of this is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. Again, no longer is the Holy Spirit just just given to specific people for a specific time. Joel's point and Peter's is that all people will receive the Holy Spirit to be a witness of Christ and will be equipped with various, various gifts to serve him in the church. From his exaltation after his ascension, Christ himself gives these gifts. In Acts 2.33, being exalted therefore at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are hearing and seeing. In 1 Corinthians 12.13, Paul says in, in one spirit we were baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we're all made to drink of the one spirit. And throughout Acts, we, we see that it is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that identifies people as Christians. 1 Corinthians 12.3, Paul says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, he's not just talking about, about saying the words, Jesus is Lord. So it was some magical incantation. He's saying that you cannot actually receive Jesus as your Lord unless you receive Jesus by the Holy Spirit. There is no other way. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not indwelt with the Holy Spirit. A lot of our brothers and sisters in some denominations refer to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but there is no baptism of the Holy Spirit that is a sub- subsequent event that takes place after conversion. All Christians are, are baptized with the Holy Spirit. All Christians are indwelt with the Holy Spirit upon conversion. And so when Peter and Joel here refer to all flesh, we understand here that, that they are not referring just to, as Craig Keener explains, not just to men and women and young and old and servants but implied as people of all nations. All nations. Daryl Bach likens this outpouring of the Spirit to to a a torrential downpour that is poured out on a parched earth. Here in Kelowna, we we know a a little bit about drought. And we can see even just at our neighbor's place, it it doesn't water, it's it's, it's down the corner, it's mostly mostly weeds. we We see the soil cracking. It's so dry that it's shrinking and cracking because it hasn't received much rain. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit is, is, like a, is like a downpour over the whole earth. Brothers and sisters, you and I are the recipients of that life-giving rain. You and I are part of the all-flesh. We are the recipients of the promise. I, I don't think we have anybody here who is an ethnic Jew. We're Gentiles. And we are here in the kingdom of God because of this promise. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic 
covenant in Genesis 12.3 that through Abraham's seed, all of the families of earth would be blessed. Jesus Christ is not just for Jews, but for Gentiles also. This then is the inauguration of the global mission of the church. But before the witness goes out to the ends of the earth, we see in Acts 1.8, and we'll begin to see this in the, as it forms the, the, the basic framework of the book of Acts, it, the gospel must start in Jerusalem and all Judea. The first people who need to repent are the Jews, including the ones who are gathered before Peter and the other apostles on Pentecost. And so Peter began by addressing the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem in verse 14. And his message reaches its climax with the inclusio in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that this, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So these men are about to be called to repentance for their sin, men and women. And Joel and Peter describe prophecy and, and visions and dreams as evidence of this filling of the Spirit. In the book of Acts, the apostles are presented in the, the same vein as the earlier prophets. This is a, a common theme in Acts. Peter here in this sermon is a prophet. We'll, we'll see it with Paul. But it's not just with the apostles. We'll also see it with Stephen in, in Acts 7, who, who's a deacon. Again, the proclamation is the sign. Now, there's some debate as is whether this, th these prophecy and visions and, and dreams were, were, were normative for all time or only for the, the time of the apostles. As we talked about in our, in our study of the spiritual gifts, there's a form of, of prophecy that, that still continues. This is the, the fourth telling of the word of God, the proclamation of God's word. The proclamation continues to be the sign Again, in, in many churches, there is a focus on the gifts and of themselves. A focus on the gifts themselves without focusing on Christ. Again, misses the point of Pentecost. Christ is the point of Pentecost. And the chief sign is, is that, that, that the, the disciples and all disciples are empowered to bear witness to him. Peter is, is going to make a, a shift to, to discuss the day of the Lord in, in verses 19 and 20. It's, it's unclear here as to whether there's going to be a, a resurgence of, of these things in that day. But, but you know my, my position on eschatological gifts, I, I, I just have to say I don't know because the scriptures don't clearly say. But I'm reluctant to close doors that the scriptures don't clearly close. So then as, as Peter transitions to discuss the day of the Lord, Saying the lead up to that day, there are going to be other signs. So now we'll discuss the day of the Lord in verses 19 to 21. Joel and Peter include cosmic signs that point to the culmination of the last days with the arrival of the day of the Lord. If the giving of the Holy Spirit is a sign of the inauguration of the last days, the, the cosmic events that they speak of are the signs of its consummation. Right, he's putting brackets this is the beginning with these signs of the giving of the Spirit and these, these cosmic signs 
are the end of the last days as the, the culmination with the, the day of the Lord. Wonders and signs will appear in the heavens and on the earth. There will be blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and magnificent day of the Lord. Now this specific language is, is echoed in Revelation 6.12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became like blood. Now when you think of, of these terms of, of earthquakes and and darkness and, and blood, what, what do you think of? Well, for me, it evokes thoughts of, of God's coming judgment, and, and so it should, because that is what is in view here. At the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return, it will be a glorious day like one like no other. But as Joel warns back in Joel 2, 1 and 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion, set an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will there be again after them, through the years of all generations. And Joel warns, the judgment day, the day of the Lord could arrive very soon. 115, for the day of the Lord is near and destruction from the Almighty, it comes. You need to ask yourself the question, am I prepared for that day? Are you prepared for the day of the Lord? Peter's warning of coming judgment leads to an appeal for repentance and faith. It says in verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is going to expand on this. We'll see next week, Lord willing, in, in verses 38 to 40. Friends, you only hope on the day of the Lord is the name of the Lord. Your only hope on the day of the Lord is the name of the Lord. As Peter will declare before the religious authorities in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Those who call on Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone for their salvation, will experience the full blessings of the next phase in history, eternal life. And that's Joel's message as well. The, the context of, of Joel, it was Joel wrote his prophecy at a time when, when Israel had been decimated by a locust plague. Every green thing in, in the nation had been devoured by these locusts. But Joel says in, in Joel 2.25 that the Lord will, will restore the years that locust has eaten. And in verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is none else. My people should never again be put to shame. As I mentioned earlier, Peter does not include the end of, uh, of Joel 2.32 in his exposition. For in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, there should be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now we're going to have to wait until next week to discuss what happens to those in Jerusalem who hear his message. But the pertinent question before us at the moment what will happen to you who hear this message? For the unbeliever, the day of the Lord will be a day of 
terror and horror in the presence of their holy judge. For the unbeliever, the day of the Lord is the first day of eternal judgment. But again, this warning of judgment also includes a call to repentance and hope. The promise of salvation for all who call on the name of the Lord shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you walking in repentance and faith? For the believer, the day of the Lord is the day of full and final deliverance into the eternal presence of your Lord and Savior. Again, your only hope on the day of the Lord is the name of the Lord. Are you personally trusting in Christ? Are you walking in repentance and faith? Is Peter's Lord your Lord? Is the Lord Jesus your Lord? Is Peter's Holy Spirit your Holy Spirit? Are you indwelt by him? Strengthened by him? Walking before him in his power? Bearing witness to Christ as he works in your heart? Peter had dropped the light bulb again and again. We have dropped the light again and again. But trust in this promise, brothers and sisters, trust in this promise that you too, if you're in Christ, you know full forgiveness in Christ. If you're in Christ, you know the indwelling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, strengthening you to do that which you could never do on your own. To bear witness to Christ in word and indeed, for the glory of his name and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for the wonders of the gospel that you would take hard-hearted rebels and regenerate their hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit indwelling them, indwelling us. Causing us to see Christ with spiritual eyes and to place our hope fully and finally in Him and Him alone. Granting us repentance. Enable us to walk in the truth, guiding us into the truth, pointing us ever, always towards Christ and empowering us to ever and always to point others towards Christ. We pray that you would work through the ministry of this little local church. They would cause us to go out from here and to, and to daily to go out from our homes conscious of the fact that we've been given the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Christ. But not even just as we go out from our homes, in our homes. May our children and other family members see Christ in us and hear Christ in us. Help us, I pray, to invite others, unbelievers, into our homes to show true hospitality, to shine the light of Christ in their lives as well. 
to show that we are who we are because of you, Lord Jesus. Through your church and the power of your spirit, advance your name, advance your kingdom. For your glory we pray. Amen.